Good morning again. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, as we've heard your word read, we now pray that we would hear your words in our hearts. Bless this time that we have together. May it speak to each of us right where we are. May there be things, ideas, challenges for each of us that you desire. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, any remaining kiddos, you're welcome to head out to kids' time if you want, or you can hang. We like you being around, Connor. Thank you for being here this morning. I want to start uh, with a thought about power. Power is going to be our theme for the day. I want you to think with me about companies that we know of that are considered to be powerful. Why would a company be powerful? Before you can answer that question, you have to identify what power is. So let me give us an operating definition for power. Power, according to Dallas Willard, one of my favorite philosophers, theologians, power is the capacity to accomplish an end the capacity to accomplish an end, the ability to bring about a goal, to make something happen. So if a company is powerful, does that mean that they have the cash on hand to get something done? Is it just purely based on cash? If a company is powerful in another way, is it because they have the proprietary technology? They've got the next thing that is gonna change the way we live. Is it the ability to hire and fire people, right? A couple of months ago we talked about a monopsony and how some companies have that power. Power is the capacity to accomplish an end. Uh, I was reading a magazine a few weeks ago, and I don't read this magazine often, The Economist. I don't read it often because it's really tiny print, and it's hard for me to read. The, this article in The Economist made the case that the most powerful companies in the world are no longer oil companies, they're no longer steel companies, they're no longer companies that have control over an actual tactical, tactile piece of a resource. The most powerful companies in the world now are data companies. Data, tracked increasingly through our growing network of devices, tells companies everything. And so many of us work in technology or connected technology, we understand this. But this article was so fascinating because it made the case that companies that I wouldn't normally think of as being data companies are in fact data companies. Case in point, would you guess that Tesla or General Motors is a more valuable company today? Which company actually has more value? In terms of stock price, in terms of overall influence in the market, a whole bunch of different things. According to this article, Tesla's production just pales in comparison to General Motors. In the first quarter of this year alone, General Motors rolled out 2.3 million vehicles. Tesla rolled out 25,000. Tesla doesn't have as big of a global footprint, doesn't have a huge workforce, but according to this article, it's actually worth more and I checked the stock price on Friday, Tesla is worth 10 times more than GM is. And there's a lot of different ways to value stock, and I, I understand at least a little bit of that. But the point the article was making is that Tesla is worth more, is more powerful than General Motors, because their vehicles collect data. They snap up data from us. How, how much data? The article estimates that when Tesla's fleet of self-driving vehicles is actually out and running around, those vehicles will be able to collect over 100 gigabytes of data per second from their users, 100 gigs a second. That's crazy amounts of data. The article goes on to say, and I'm quoting now, the more data Tesla gathers from its self-driving cars, the better it can make them at driving themselves. And my inference from that is the more likely consumers will one day make the big switch and give up the wheel. That's what they're working toward. That is the end of Tesla's power. Get people to give up the wheel so you'll drive their self-driving cars. What's the use of power that's fitting then 
for people who want to follow Jesus Christ, who want to live by faith, as was the quote that came to us from Habakkuk. What do we do when we feel powerless? We all get into situations like this, whether we follow Jesus Christ or not, and we say, I, I can't do anything about that. We read a news headline or we see about a tragedy and we go, man, I wish there was something I could do, but I just feel powerless. Our thesis today includes this assumption that all of us have power. All of us have the ability to influence others. If you don't agree with me, go get on 405, start driving, and slam on your brakes. You have power because you can influence the behavior and the opinions of others, and you can cause people to say colorful things to you and share gestures with you. It's a form of power to be able to do that. I wouldn't recommend doing that. The thesis for today is this. Those who have power and use it well live by faith. We all have power, and we're all living by certain rules that we believe about power. And I think the case the scriptures are going to make for us today is that the way God uses and executes power, it's the way that we should look at our own power. Not that we have equal power to God, but that the way he stewards and uses power is really important for us to pay attention to. So, Phil read to us from Habakkuk. I was talking to a friend this week, and they asked uh, what book I'm preaching from, and I said Habakkuk, and they said, that's a book in the Bible? I said, yeah, I know. I haven't read it a lot. Like, it's crazy. But we're going to look at Habakkuk. It's an ancient text, and as we've been doing throughout our sermon series, we're going to kind of set the stage. What, what's Habakkuk? What's this about? And then we're going to go through the outline that's in your bulletin where we talk about power, and we talk about how to live by faith. We're going to finish with a very, very practical spiritual discipline that applies to power. So, Let's talk about Habakkuk. Who was he? What time was he writing? What was going on? Uh, we know very little about Habakkuk the person. Like, we, we just don't know a whole lot about him. There's not a lot of introduction to him in the book. We do know that he was a prophet. And what have we learned about prophets over the last couple of weeks? The prophet's job is to go into the people of Israel and tell them stuff they don't want to hear, stuff that's probably going to make them mad at them. Unlike the other prophets we've looked at so far in our series, Habakkuk isn't sharing a message with the people of Israel at a really crazy time, right? Like we learned last week that Haggai was speaking to the people of God after they were coming back to Jerusalem after a really brutal season in their history. We learned that other prophets like Amos and, and other examples have spoken to the people of God as they've been in the middle of even deeper crises, when the temple was destroyed, when all these historical events that you can trace back in the history, when those things happened is often when the prophet would come and speak to the people. Habakkuk is coming before any of these big ticket disasters happen to the people of God. He's writing to the people of Israel at a relatively peaceful time, maybe a little bit like our time. The economy is working right. Unemployment is low. People are able to live into what they've been called to do. And in this case, the people of Israel are able to live like they're supposed to live in, Ju in Jerusalem, worshiping God, going to the temple. All those things are in place. And so what Habakkuk does is he sets this up for us, and then he puts two different characters at odds with one another, right? Like he's kind of writing a stage play for us. And the two main characters are, of course, the people of Israel. That's who he's talking to, right? And then this really interesting group of people called the Chaldeans, who were the Chaldeans? They were the precursors to the Babylonians. These were the ancestors, the great-granddaddies and the great-grandmommies of the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are significant because they come in later in the history of Israel and they tear the place apart. They wreck Israel's way of life. Remember, they come in, they destroy the temple, they kidnap and capture all the important good-looking people. Seriously, it's in the Bible. They took away the good-looking people. It's crazy. The Chaldeans did that, but 
not them exactly. Their grandchildren are going to go do this. So Habakkuk is talking about the Chaldeans in a time when they hadn't yet become the oppressors of Israel. They were more like the neighborhood bully. And as we all know, bullies have situational power, but they do not have ultimate power. And so that's one of the witnesses that Habakkuk brings to bear. We see this in different approaches to power, right? So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1. This is where Bible apps are really helpful because then you can just search. You don't have to go to the table of contents for it. I want to show us two different ways that these two characters interact with power, okay? So the Chaldeans, how do they understand power? What does it mean to them that they can accomplish an end? For them, their power is probably like most of us in Western individualistic culture. Their power comes from themselves, it comes from their own culture, their own understanding of how they should interact with the world. They're not beholden to any other authority. They don't have any other, any other figures or systems or religions looking over their shoulder. They're just doing things kind of how they want to do it. So look with me at Habakkuk chapter 1. I'll read verse 7 for us. And this is God talking about the Chaldeans. He says this, Dread and fearsome are they. Their justice and dignity proceed from themselves. Isn't that an interesting observation about somebody's character? Their justice and their dignity proceed from themselves. Justice being, how do we live under the rule of law? How do we know what justice is according to the Bible? It's treating other people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. The Chaldeans say, actually, we understand justice pretty good, and it is what we say it is. So they have some sense of the rule of law, but it's completely beholden to them. If you disagree with the Chaldeans in the way that they do that, sorry, they're just going to walk all over you. Also, their dignity proceeds from themselves. So what their expectations are of what a good and right person is or does is completely built within their own walls. Fascinating. Reminds me of echo chambers in our day and age. Now go ahead uh, to verse 11 of chapter 1. This is another description of the Chaldeans. And again, where's their power coming from? It's coming from themselves. The Bible says this. The Chaldeans, they sweep by like the wind, they transgress and become guilty. Their own might is their God, little g, God. Their own power is their strength. If you've ever watched uh, one of those ESPN documentaries about professional athletes who get out of the game and they try to figure out what's next, what do I do, so often their power is gone. They don't have the power to go run down a touchdown anymore. They don't have the power to hit a grand slam. Their bodies have failed them. And so absent that power, their way of life collapses. And it's really hard for so many, especially guys, to get through that. The power is gone. And thankfully, there are more resources now for athletes to try to find new ways of life and new things to do. But that's what I thought of when I read that. Their power is based on their own might, their own sense of being able to do stuff. So the Chaldeans draw power from themselves. The Israelites, here's what they're supposed to do, right? Like this is what they're supposed to be aiming at, the target that they're theoretically hitting, except usually they're not. The first commandment that God gives to the people of Israel, top of the list of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. That's where they're supposed to draw their power from. What I mean by that is they're supposed to be living in such a tight, devoted relationship with God where they depend on God, where they ask God for help, where they rely on him in every way that all other gods, all their forms of power, all their things that they can chase down just aren't that appealing. And that's their identity as God's people. That's where their power comes from. It comes from God. We see this all throughout 
God's trajectory of bringing people in to lead his people. He taps Abraham on the shoulder, pulls him out of the wilderness, and says, I want you to be the father of many nations. I want you to take this and run with it. And Abraham didn't have the power to do that. He was a wandering nomad. He didn't really have a life or a family. But God brings him in and says, this is what I have for you. And I'm going to give you the power to accomplish this. Same thing with Isaac. Same thing with Jacob. Same thing with Moses. With all these important figures from the Old Testament. Each one of them was able to use power well because they recognized where power came from. It comes from God. Now, this kind of presents all of us with a bit of a philosophical, theological challenge. I had to step back from this actually just this morning. I was drinking my coffee with Amelia sitting on my lap at the breakfast table going like, there's got to be something more to what the scripture is saying right now. And I think I may have found something. My sources of power, your sources of power, where do we try to draw power from? Let me list off a couple examples and tell me, resonate with me if you think these apply to you. Maybe I draw a lot of power from my position and my title. And we all know countless examples, unfortunately, of pastors, especially, who've misused that position and that title. Maybe you're in a field where a source of power is your technical skills. You are able to write code. You are able to build this device. You're able to do something that really very few other people in your field can do. So your power comes from your technical skills. Maybe your power, like Tesla, comes from the data that you have, this appropriation of knowledge, zeros and ones, that tells you about something, and you can employ that for powerful purposes. Maybe your power comes from your experience. Hey, I've been here a long time. I've seen a few things. I've seen the market change and shift. It'll be okay. We got this. The problem with each of those forms of power is that they're incredibly fragile. They can be tipped over at a moment's notice. And my question for each of us is, of those just four examples that I just listed, position and title, technical skills, data or knowledge experience, which of those four is most important to you? And which of those four, if it were to go away, would crush you? Because those are the things where we've created idols, where we have created things that should never have that much power for any of us. You'll know which one of those things matters the most to you because it's the thing that when it's attacked, you vigorously defend it. You do everything in your power to try to protect that sense of power. And this becomes a challenge when the end of our use of our power, our desire, remember Dallas Willard said that power is the ability to achieve an end, to get something done. When the end of our use of power is our comfort or our own sense of stability or something that really just has everything to do with us and not a lot to do with anybody else, that's when we start to go off the rails. That's when power starts to become misused. And the people of God were stepping into that. And part of what Habakkuk said to them was, hey, you see what the Chaldeans are doing? You're doing the same thing. You're just calling it something else. Which of our sources of power are we most relying upon? Not that we shouldn't have confidence in the things that we've been trained to do or are capable of doing, but they should never become ultimate in our lives. So which of those things, if you lost it, would just really unsettle you? I know which one it is for me. The great thing about the witness of Habakkuk is, is that the end of God's power, what God demonstrates through this, this really incredible prophecy, is that the ends that he desires are always good. The power that he uses is always well used because it comes directly from him. God alone has the power to do things like bring justice, bring equity, show people how to treat each other well. 
And so I want to look at two different examples where God shows his power. He shows his power in two different ways, over people who would misuse power, the Chaldeans, and he shows that he has power over creation. Look, look again with me at Habakkuk 1. We're going to look at chapter, verse 6 for just a moment. Habakkuk 1, 6. God says this, I am rousing the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. I'm rousing the Chaldeans. I'm waking them up. I'm getting them to go in a different direction than they thought they were going to go. And what he's saying by that is, my power over these people who are misusing power is so great, they don't even know it. They don't even get that I'm employing them for my purposes. We still live in a time when there are plenty of people that we would say are like the Chaldeans. They come in, they think they have all this power, they're going to run around and do stuff, but their power is only situational. And so when God says, I can even use those people, I can even use those folks that are misusing power to do things for me, do we believe him? Do we believe that he's actually capable of that? No bully can keep bullying forever because their power is situational and it's going to get pulled out from under them at some point. But in this case, the Chaldeans are even used by God to create something for the people of Israel they never could have figured out for themselves. A moment when they look at God and say, do we really trust you? Are you really about justice? Are you really about things that are important? Do we expect you to use your power well, God? Or do we think we have it all figured out? The people of Israel are faced with that question. So that's one reason that God's power is worth our attention because he has power over marauders and raging bullies and he can use them and they don't even know it. And I don't know anybody that can do that. Only God can do that. There's another reason his power is important to the message of Habakkuk. It show, he shows that he is more powerful than anything that happens in the natural world, anything that happens in creation. Uh, bunch of our family members are here, and so they'll resonate with this. Every year, we go down to the Oregon coast for Thanksgiving, and we go to this very, very remote spot, you know, kind of the ends of the earth. It's beautiful, and it's wild, and I like to go running on this old coastal highway that's kind of overgrown with trees, and it's cracked, and it's rainy, and it's cold, and I run to this place called Otter Point. It's a state park. I've never actually seen an otter there. I'm still waiting for the day when I see an otter. And so you get out to Otter Point, and you're standing up, and it's, it's like a 200-foot cliff. Right below you is the Pacific Ocean. And every time I get up to the top of Otter Point, like I kind of you know, peer over just a little bit, and you see the waves just pounding against the rocks, and you see this chaos and the foam. And my thought when I was writing this week was, not, there is not a person on Earth who could survive what happens at the bottom of Otter Point. Nobody. The most highly trained Navy SEAL, the, 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 you know, the sole survivor guy, all these specialists, right, and being able to do that. Iron Man couldn't survive what happens down at the bottom of Otter Point because it's so powerful, it's so devastating. In our text, God shows his people that he is more powerful than what happens at the bottom of Otter Point. He is way more powerful than the sea. He is way more powerful than the crashing waves against the rocks. Listen to this. This is Habakkuk 3, 9 through 11. The prophet's saying this about God. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and they writhed. A torrent of water swept by. The deep gave forth its voice. The sun raised high its hands. The moon stood still in its exalted place. And the light of your arrows speeding by at the gleam of your flashing spear. It's beautiful poetry to describe that God has power over what he created. 
and the Chaldeans' power and the power of any bully and the power of any oppressor in any of our lives is nothing compared to the power of God. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, is there any part of my life that demonstrates that I understand this, that the power of, that I actually believe the power of God is greater? And to get there, I think we have to think about the places of fear that most often come up in our lives. I know for a lot of us, it's the fear of death. There was a man that I knew when I was in seminary. He was actually the father of my mentor. Uh, his name was Conrad, Conrad Jacobson. And he's, to this day, one of the most amazing examples of just a man who believed in God, trusted God, just pursued God with his whole life. He was on Young Life staff forever in the Seattle area. He was well-beloved by so many people, just a real icon of a guy. And then about halfway through seminary, uh, Conrad got sick. He got cancer. And I'm going to make a statement about what he chose to do, and I'm not saying this is what everybody has to do. I'm saying this is what he chose to do. Conrad, when he found out that he was sick, and it was not going to get better, he chose to not have chemo. He chose to not have any other advanced forms of treatment. He just said, I want to enjoy the last six months of my life with my grandkids and with my family. And he was able to do that because he trusted in the power of God. He knew it was going to be hard. He knew it probably wasn't going to be good. But he wanted something greater than just trying to save his own life. And I'm not saying that if you choose to save your life by doing chemo, by doing any of those things that you're wrong, that it's not biblical. All I'm saying is that Conrad set an example for me that I've never forgotten. And he trusted so deeply in the power of God to get him through cancer and to care for his family and to see healing through that. And he did pass away after about six months. But every chance I got to spend with him, I did. And I would talk to him and I'd ask him how it was going and the things that God was revealing to him during that time the love that he experienced, the way that he was able to read the Bible and just have it open up to him in a powerful way. I've never seen that in my life. And I think it's because he trusted in the power of God in such a powerful way that it changed him and it changed those of us who knew him. And when I think of the word righteousness, which is here in the text, the righteous will live by faith, I think of Conrad. And maybe you have somebody like him in your life that has faced death courageously. And death won. But in Conrad's case, it didn't really win. Because he knows Jesus Christ, and I know where he is. And God knows where he is. So he lived by faith in a powerful way in the face of something awful that every one of us has been touched by, this disease, cancer. And he did so because he trusted in the power of God to be greater than the power of any drugs, any healing, anything that cancer could face. And we've seen that Habakkuk's message to the people is to kind of do something similar, to say, trust in this power. Don't keep trusting in the power like the Chaldeans do of their own abilities, their own ability to fight stuff or to try to crush people. Listen to what I'm telling you about my own power. The righteous will live by faith. And that's the end of the passage that Phil read for us. So I want us to go back real briefly to that definition of power that Dallas Willard gave to us, the capacity to accomplish an end. Dallas went on to say that part of what power is used for when it's used well is to get on board with what God is doing in the real world. So here's what Dallas had to say about that. He said this, I believe men and women were designed by God in the very constitution of their human personalities to carry out his rule by meshing the relatively little power resident in their own bodies with the power inherent in the infinite kingdom of God. 
And so faith is exercised by means of a power greater than their own bodies could muster, a power conveyed through a personal relation with the creator of all things. That's what living by faith will do. It'll allow us to use power properly. If we're designed to live with God in his kingdom where he's doing stuff, where he is changing the world, which is right here, right now, if we want to do things like love others, practice generosity, support Peter Kirk and what they're trying to do, get involved with Jubilee Reach, all these other things that we're connecting to in our community, then the way to do that is not through mustering our own power from within. It's through leaning into this gift, this relationship that we have with God, like I saw my friend Conrad lead into when he faced cancer. The righteous shall live by faith. That should be a familiar phrase. If you've read through the New Testament at all, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this. Galatians chapter 3 talks about this. Romans chapter 1 talks about this. The righteous will live by faith. And you know who's always at the center of that? Jesus Christ. The righteous will live by faith is not a call to morality. It's not a call to keeping rules. It's a call to saying this relationship with Jesus Christ is going to allow you to live in such a way that you demonstrate that you trust God. Last week we talked about Les Miserables and the character of the priest. Remember this? So Jean Valjean, the main character, gets out of prison. He goes and crashes with this priest. He steals all of his silver. He flees in the middle of the night. He gets caught. The police bring him back to the priest. And what does the priest say? Oh, you forgot your candlesticks. I meant to give these to you as well. He blesses him. He changes his life. And the claim that we made last week that I want to just pick up again briefly this week is that the priest knew what to do in that moment because he was a righteous man. Not self-righteous. He was righteous. He knew how to live like God wanted him to live when the chips were down, when a man's life was literally in the palm of his hand. And he changed Jean Valjean's life forever. He knew how to use power well because he chose to live by faith. So what do we do about it? I mentioned a spiritual discipline at the beginning, and this is how we'll wrap up. The spiritual discipline that I want to recommend is prayer. Just prayer, plain and simple. Because through prayer, we can have the proper vantage point on the power that has been entrusted to each of us. So one more time from Dallas Willard. Prayer is God's arrangement for safe power sharing with us in his intention to bless the world through us. Prayer is how God shares power with us, gifts it to us so that we can use it in ways that he desires. Listen to this. I'll read this twice. In response to prayer, we see good accomplished far beyond what we are capable of and in a form suited to the wisdom of God, not just what we think we know about the situation we are praying for. I think that's what my friend Conrad knew when he chose not to pursue treatment for his cancer. In response to prayer, he was praying about it. We see good accomplished far beyond what we are capable of. He was able to touch people's lives. He was able to bless me and bless my family in incredible ways. And he accomplished some good far beyond anything that any of us could have imagined. In a form suited to the wisdom of God. So, maybe you're looking for a job. Maybe you are uh, thinking about someone that you're starting a relationship with and you're going, I like where this is going. I don't know where it's going, but I like where it's going. Maybe you're getting ready to welcome a new baby. I've never thought about this, but have you thought about praying for the form suited to the wisdom of God for that prayer? God, in your wisdom, bless this child. In your wisdom, bless this relationship that I have with this person. 
God, in your wisdom, lead me to a change in my career that really makes an impact on the world. In May of 2015, I started praying for this church. My family and I came up here and we interviewed and we were part of this wonderful process where God kind of swept us out of where we were and brought us here. And in May of 2015, I started praying for this church. And now, more than two years later, I could never have imagined the way God has used this community and the way God has brought us here and brought my family to a wonderful home, to a wonderful community, the way that we are connecting as a congregation with Peter Kirk, with Jubilee Reach and their mission to bless schools in Bellevue and beyond, the way that we just started worshiping with a historically African-American congregation just like that, I never could have dreamed of that. But that's our partnership with Paradise Baptist Church. That's one of the many things that we get to lean into. That when I started praying for this church in May of 2015, I had no idea. But that is the wisdom of God. That is suited to the wisdom of God. If we were all to start praying for that, not just what we think we want to see happen in our lives or in the lives of someone we know, what could happen? What incredible things could God bring about? I don't know, but I'm excited to see what happens when we start praying that. Power belongs to God. And so wherever you are feeling powerless this week, whenever you see a headline that you go, there's nothing I can do about that. Yes, there is. You can pray that God in his wisdom would bring about what he wants, not just what we can see, but what he wants for our world. And we do this every time we worship together. This is why we pray together for our community at the end, so we can align ourselves better with the vision that God has for our community and our world. Prayer is how Habakkuk changed that community, how he changed the shape of the Israelites. And prayer is how we as a church are going to continue to move into the future that God has for us. And I'm very grateful to be on the journey with you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we can only dream of what is still to come for us as a community. We can only dream, only just imagine all the different ways that you want to shape us and mold us and form us. And so as we are challenged by your word, as we're challenged by the stories of our own lives, of trying to find power, trying to find things on our own, and just coming up short and failing or feeling so hurt when things don't turn out like we hoped they would. God, I wanted healing for my friend and it didn't happen. In the midst of those very painful places, God, I wanted this person to be the one and it didn't work out. I wanted this job. Even though it is really hard to and it forces us to kind of put our hearts in a different place, would you take those places of deep brokenness and pain and show us how through our pain you are expressing your power and you invite us through prayer to align ourselves with your power, to be good stewards of it. May that be one of the many things you accomplish in and through our community in the week ahead. We love you, and we are grateful for all that you have done and for who you are. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you join me as we continue to sing in our worship? <laughs>